Romans chapter 12. Oh, my Bible bent. That's what happens when you open it. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. And uh, next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about the idea or the, um, the uh, concept of surrender. Surrender. And so we're going to read Romans 12. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to be jumping around a lot tonight. So if you have your Bibles, be ready to turn the page. Uh, if you have your uh, Bible on your phone, be ready to kind of uh, scroll through. Because we have a lot to cover tonight in a short amount of time. So uh, we have Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, I just we're going to stop there. Whenever the Bible says, therefore... You always have to wonder, well, what's that there for, right? Like, what came before? Ah, you like that? You catch it. All right. You're much faster tonight. I like it. So you always have to say, well, what's it there for? What came before it in order for them to come to this point and say, therefore? And so uh, what's so important about it? So Paul lays out a lot of groundwork through Romans chapter 1 through Romans 11 up to this point. So uh, do me a favor. Go to Romans chapter 1. Just turn over a couple of pages. Romans 1. And he goes over a lot of groundwork to bring us up to this therefore. Paul, uh, Paul starts out the letter uh, with some greetings. But then in, in verse 16 of ch uh, chapter 1 he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So he start, Paul is starting off his letter with this is the theme of the letter. The theme of the letter is this. It's the gospel. And it's the gospel. It's only by the power of the gospel that people are saved, whether they are Jew or whether they are Greek. It's only by the gospel that you're saved or made right with God. He continues on in chapter 1 and he starts to explain that everyone knows that there's a God. Everyone knows. It's built inside of you to know that there is a God. And, and he says that um, everyone knows that there's a God and no one has any excuses to not believe in God. He says that in, in those words. You have no excuse not to believe because all you have to do is look at creation. Look at creation and there is evidence that there is a creator. There is evidence that there is God and people choose to not believe. They have to go out of their way and try to make up reasons to try to disprove God. But if you just look with your eyes, just use common sense and look at nature, there has to be a creator. There has to be a God. And so when people choose to not believe, God allows them to fall into and follow their sins. But he says that if you do that, there are consequences. If you choose to do that, he goes into Paul goes into chapter two and he starts to describe God's judgment. His righteous judgment of sin. And that's those consequences he was talking about in chapter 1. And he says that the only righteous person is someone who keeps the entire law of God. That's, that's basically what chapter 2 talks about. It has to be someone who, who 
follows the law to the T, but it has to be because they are changed on the inside, not because they just want to do a bunch of good stuff and get praised for it. And then he goes into chapter 3, and he's got some bad news. He reveals that no one has or can keep the entire law. So chapter 2 says, in order to be right, you've got to keep the law. Chapter 3 says, well, you can't. Yeah, right? Kind of bad news. In 3.10, he says that there are none righteous, no, not one. Not one person can do this. And then he says in, in uh, verse 21 of chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the righteousness of God is not the law. However, you need the law and the prophets to point people to what he's about to say in verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard this verse, right? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now you might say, well, what's the glory of God? We find out in the book of Hebrews a little bit later that the glory of God is Jesus. Which means that none of us can, can go up to that standard. None of us can, can live up to the standard that Jesus uh, lived up to. For all have sinned. And there's no distinction of person. We're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter if you're from the north or the south. None of those things matter because we're all in the same boat of sinners. Uh, verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read some verses. Then I'm going to come back and explain what these words mean. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I'm going to go over some of those big words I just said, okay? So in verse 24, it says that, but basically what I just read in those verses, it says that we can have righteousness, but not because of our goodness, but because of Jesus's goodness. That's what those verses are saying. In verse 24, when it says justified, that's just a really... Big word. It, 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 the best way to know what justified means, the best way to remember it, to remember it, it's it's justified had never sinned. That's what justified means. It's justified had never sinned. That means that you have a clean slate. You don't have a record. It's just as if you had never sinned. And then it says redemption, which it comes from the word redeemed, which is a payment or a clearing of a debt. We talked about this at camp, right? That if you think it, it, it's used in a banking term, that when you pay off a loan and it's paid in full, it's been stamped redeemed. And that through the blood of Jesus Christ, this word, it says that, that we are redeemed, that it's paid in full because of what Jesus did. And then it talks about propitiation. That's another one of those big words. But it may, you know what it means? A payment that satisfies. A payment that satisfies. The word of God says that it takes the blood of Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God on sin. 
You might say, well, why does God have to have wrath on sin? Well, in verse 26, it says that he did all this stuff so that he may be just and the justifier. See, just is one of God's attributes. He is a just judge. And a just judge must judge a crime, right? Or, or, or sin. If you think about it in legal terms, if someone does something bad to you and they go before a judge and the judge says, well, that's all right. We'll let them off. Is that a good judge? No. It's not a good judge. And so, but we expect God to do that with our, you know, you hear that in the world all the time, right? Here, all the time. You know, well, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell, or I don't believe God would condemn anybody. Well, then he wouldn't be a just judge if he didn't condemn sin, if he didn't hold accountable the sin. But then he says, listen, I'm going to be the just, but I'm also going to be the justifier, which means that, hey, listen, I'm going to judge sin, but I'm going to be the one who takes the payment. I'm the justifier. So our God is so good that he is not only completely just, but he's also completely love and completely mercy and completely grace all wrapped into one. He's the just and justifier. And then in chapter four, Paul goes on to describe how Abraham was justified by faith, that it wasn't by works. The promise of, that God made to Abraham to make his descendants as the sands of the seashore was realized because of faith and not works. In, uh, in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul writes, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then he says in verse 23, But the words it counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, our faith, our believing in or believing on Jesus Christ, it says that it counted to him as righteousness. The same way that it counted to Abraham is it counts to us. And then it goes right into chapter 5, verse 1. And this is one of the, one of the greatest verses. Therefore, another one of those therefores. So based on what I just said from Romans 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified is justified. Never sinned by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so it's fair to assume that in order for us to have peace with God, it's through Jesus Christ. So without Jesus Christ, that means we do not have peace with God. It indicates that without justification by faith, we will never have faith or never have peace with God. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And then we have 5 verse 8, one of my favorite passages. But God shows his love for us. 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? But God shows, he demonstrates, he acted out. He shows you his love in that he died for you while you were still a sinner, while we were still sinners. This is great news, guys. Some of you are looking at me blank-faced. But this is great news. The reason why is because you never, ever, ever, ever have to wonder, does anyone love me? You never, ever have to wonder, am I loved? Am I lovable? Will anyone ever love me? Yes, God loves you. God loves you so much that he died for you while you were still in your sin. That's how much you are loved. You never have to wonder, am I ever going to be loved? Will anyone ever love me? Yes, you are loved by the creator of everything. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Students, I don't know about you, but I am so excited that I do not have to deal with the wrath of God. I do not ever, ever, ever have to feel the wrath of God. These people that have tattoos that say only God can judge me, I just want to grab them by the arm and say, dear brother, dear sister, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't want God to judge you. You want to accept the free gift that is Jesus Christ because he took God's judgment. He took God's wrath so you don't have to. Brother and sister, you don't want God to judge you because Jesus took the judgment for you. I'm so thankful I don't have to. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were enemies with God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? In other words, while we were enemies, while we stuck our nose to God, while we told him we don't need you, we're going to fight against you, he said, I'm going to send my son to reconcile or to bring back into relationship. I'm going to bring peace between you and me through Jesus. And I'm going to do that through the blood of Jesus. And not only that, when he died on the cross, he came back to life. And it's by his life that we are saved. If he stayed dead, then we would just be another one of those dead faiths like, like Hindu and Buddha and all those other dead religious leaders. No, we have a risen God. And that is why we have salvation. And then I love how Paul write, how he writes because it's, it's like he's preaching, man. He's like, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have joy. Forever and ever. Because number one, we don't have to answer for our sin. And number two, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can have joy forever and ever and ever. That our circumstances don't get to dictate the joy that's inside of us. It's because of what Jesus did for us. Paul continues to explain in chapter 5 that it's through one man, through Adam, that sin entered the bloodstream. And it's by one man, Jesus, through his blood, all mankind finds salvation. In chapter 6, Paul explains how in Christ we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. A dead man cannot sin. And this describes the concept, and this is one of those big theological words you might have heard, maybe you haven't, called mortification. Anyone else heard that? Anyone heard that word, mortification? It's a big theological term. And basically, it talks about putting to death our sin nature. Putting it to death, and it's a battle. And students, the best way to kill our sin nature is not to feed it. 
is to starve it. Because we need to kill it before it kills us. We don't need to satisfy our sin nature. We need to stop flirting with sin and we need to start fleeing from sin. Because we all like that thrill. We all like that adrenaline rush of how far can I go? How close to the cliff can I go? Oh, I'm right there. Oh, I'm not going to go. And then boom, you're gone. Right? Over and over and over. And every time you say, I'm not going to do it again, God. I'm not going to do it again. I'm not even going to look at the cliff. And you're like, well, the cliff is kind of good looking. And then you fall again. Right? Stop feeding it. We need to kill our sin nature. And in 6, uh, 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions because you're dead to sin. Do not, and listen, this is a key verse. Key verse, especially in your teenage hormonal years. 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, don't set yourself up to fail. Don't put yourself in the situation that you're going to mess up. Don't say, hey, uh, here, here's me to the world. We must, we have to starve out our sin nature. And as we do that, we do what's called vivification. Say vivification. I can't hear you. Vivification. Say it like you're in church. Vivification. What that is, that is doing things that stir up your love and affection for Jesus. Doing things that stir up your love, whatever it is. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's singing some of the songs we sang. Maybe it's playing music on, on the guitar or piano or whatever your instrument of choice is. Maybe it's serving. Maybe God has called you to serve. And that when you are serving, you are feeling your most closest to God at that moment. Maybe it's studying. Some of y'all are like, nope, never studying. <laughs> I get it. But some of y'all, y'all are like me. Your nerves, and when you start reading this, you get excited because you start to understand it more. And you're like, ooh, I can't wait to tell more people about this. Maybe it's preaching or teaching. Maybe some of y'all are going to be up here doing this. Some of y'all have shared your testimony, and you're really good at it, by the way. Uh, wink, wink, hint, hint. And you might be up here teaching one day or preaching one day. And that is what vivifies you to Jesus. Or maybe it's discipling. Maybe it's helping somebody else with their walk with Jesus that gets you feeling closer to, to, to Jesus. Whatever it is, you are, you are feeding this hunger and desire for Jesus while you're killing the desire of the flesh. And he continues that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness. And I think that sometimes we use the word slave, people get freaked out, okay? And, and I hate the fact that we use that term because the word in Greek is doulos. And it doesn't mean like the horrific slave trade that occurred with Europe, Africa, and America. It has nothing to do with that. It's doulos. It means bond servant. Bond servant. And essentially, it's someone who... 
I don't want to say sold themselves, but they, they gave themselves over to pay a debt and they worked it off. In other words, if I owed uh, Scott $500, I'd come to his house every day and I would work that $500 back. And there's plenty to do at their house to earn the $500. <laughs> because I can't pay it. I've got $500, but I can work for it. And we have a contract. And we say at the end of six months, I, I will have done $500 worth of work. That's what a bond servant is. And in verse 16, it says that you are a doulos to whatever you obey. Verse 16, it says, uh, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves or doulos, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So following sin leads to death. And it says that you earn that the way that a bond servant earns its wages. But if you are obedient, it leads to righteousness, and that equals freedom. And that is a gift. And that's why he says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he says that in verse 23, because he sets it up in verse 16, and he says, hey, listen, if you want to earn something, you're going to earn death. Or you can accept this free gift, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, he starts to describe that we don't live under the law anymore. We don't live under the law. Not that the law is bad. Because without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was, right? We wouldn't know between right and wrong. And we would never understand how bad off we are if we didn't have a measuring stick. But it's not following the law that brings salvation. Instead, it's from the other side of salvation. Now that I am saved, now that I am redeemed, now that I am justified, I want to obey. I want to serve. I want to do these things. Why? Not for myself, but bringing glory and honor to God. I want to follow the law. Because the law is the word of God. The word of God is both a map and a mirror for us. For direction and self-reflection. And then chapter 8. Most uh, Bible scholars believe chapter 8 is potentially the greatest chapter in the Bible. And as you start to read it, you start to realize, holy smokes, I think they may be right. Because it starts off in verse 1. Therefore. Therefore. Why is it therefore? Therefore. Therefore. Because of what I just said from chapters 1 through chapter 7, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's good. That's a good word, y'all. That's a good word. Why? What is condemnation? It means condemned, right? What does condemned mean? Let's think about a building that's condemned. What does that mean? Tell me. If a building is condemned, what does it mean? Dangerous? What else? Dead. You know what else? It's unfit for use. That's what condemned means. The Bible says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means, remember the whole justified thing? Your record's been cleared, man. You have a clean slate. 
So if you ever hear condemnation coming up, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's from the devil. And some people are really good instruments of Satan. So when they try to condemn you, all you have to say is, get behind me, Satan, because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter who you thought you were. And none of those things matter because you've been justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's no condemnation. That's a good word. It says in verse 14 of chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's important. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That means God is not just some distant big guy in the sky. He is Dad. And you had that relationship that you are now adopted in as sons. And why son is so important? Because the oldest son gets everything when dad dies. That's just how it is. Doesn't matter how many kids you have. Like in the story of the prodigal son. Y'all remember that where he's like, I want my stuff, get it to me now? Well, there was two sons, the older and the younger. The older, that he got two-thirds of, the, of his inheritance and the younger only got one-third. Because that's just the way it was. The Bible says in verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is testifying on our behalf. That's mine. That's my child. That's my kid. Like you ever wear a T-shirt that says like my kid is the best volleyball player or basketball player or football player in the world. And you put their name on it. Well, God, where's your shirt with your number? Verse 17, and if children that heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Those that the things that are promised to Jesus, we get. And it says that we're going to suffer a little bit. You know what? Suffering is not all that bad. Suffering is not all that bad. As Ronnie said on Sunday night, I believe it was, that Suffering helps us to see the love of God. Tribulation helps us to understand the love of God better. And you know what he says in, in, in verse 18? It says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. That means that nothing on this earth, nothing, it doesn't matter how bad you think your life is, no matter how bad it gets, it can never compare with how amazing it's going to be in heaven. Nothing compares. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words. And meaning that sometimes we don't even know what to pray. And sometimes our prayers are so pithy and so empty that the Holy Spirit says, listen, Scooter, I got it for you. And he starts praying for us in a way that we can never understand. And then we just feel something that we never thought we could ever feel. Because the Spirit's praying for us. And he who searches the hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, we know this verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, all things work for good, even the things that hurt. 
Even the things that don't make sense. Even the things that you wish never happened. All things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what we strive for, right? To look and be like Christ. In order that we might be, that he might be the firstborn among the brother, many brothers. That word firstborn there, it's, uh, it's uh, prototoko. The word's prototoko. What does that sound like? Prototoko. Prototype. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That's beautiful. I don't know about y'all. <clears throat> and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Those are all past tense things, right? You know what past tense, present tense, future tense, you know what that means, right? If there's an ED, it's past tense, meaning it's a done deal. Meaning that, hey, he called us, and then he justified us, and now we're justified, and then one day we're going to be glorified. Meaning that, hey, listen, if you're justified, if your slate has been completely wiped clean, it's a done deal, and one day you're going to be in heaven forever, and you can never lose that because it's past tense glorified. Because the next step from here to eternity is your body being glorified to be like his. It's done. You can't lose your salvation. That's amazing. And then Paul starts asking some questions. What shall we say then of these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Who? No one! He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if I went up to Scott and I said, Scott, can I borrow a million dollars? And he said, absolutely, here's a million dollars. The following week, I should feel comfortable coming up to him and saying, hey, Scott, can I borrow a piece of gum? He's going to be like, sure, here's a piece of gum. I just gave you a million dollars. Why wouldn't I give you a piece of gum? Because God says, I'm going to, if I didn't, listen, if I sent my son to die on the cross for you, do you not think I'm going to take care of you? Do you not think that I'm the creator of all things and I own everything? I got you. Why do we, why do we doubt that? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one's got that kind of power. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand, indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Paul is referencing Psalm 44, where they're saying, they're saying, God, we're being, we're being mauled, we're being killed down here. Please send us a helper. Please send us help. And Paul says, guess what? The help showed up. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's more than a conqueror? That means not only are you the soldier who wins, but your dad is a general, so you get to get all the spoils of war. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whoo! And chapter 9. 
Paul shares his wish that all that his Jewish brothers would come to know Christ. And he describes that God's plan was to include the Gentiles into the family. That was his plan from the beginning. His plan from the beginning was to include the Gentiles into the family through Christ as and were all heirs and part of the Abraham promise. Chapter 10, the message of salvation is for everybody. That's what the whole point of chapter 10. In verse 4 of 10, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's kind of a weird thing to say that he's the end of the law, right? But what that means is, is that Jesus is the goal or the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled every law. He was perfection on our behalf and his righteousness counts for anyone who believes. Anyone. Regardless of where you come from or what you look like or how much money you have. And this term is known as double imputation. Another one of those big theological words, double imputation, which that means that our sin, our badness is put on Jesus. And at the exact same time, his goodness and his right standing with God is put on us. And in verse nine, it says, if you confess your if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this believe in, it's, it's more than just, it's a belief. It's more than just, I believe that. I believe that Jesus was here. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No. It's believing in, believing on. The word is pestuo. The word pestuo means to fully trust in, fully commit to place all of your weight on, fully surrender. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not just a head thing. It's a life thing. And we confess with our mouth because what's in your heart comes out of your mouth, right? We say it all the time. And what you are fully committed to, what you fully trust in, and what you're fully surrendered to is what dominates your thoughts, your conversations, and your life. Chapter 11, Paul says that Israel is still God's people because it's still through faith that they are saved and the Gentiles are grafted into God's chosen people family tree. And then we get a weird verse in 11.32. It says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You're like, what? What do you mean? (laughs) What? God gave everybody over to disobedience. What? In other words, it says this, God has given all people over to their stubborn ways and their disobedience. And the reason he does that is so that he can show mercy to everybody. Isn't that awesome? When you think about it, he has in his mercy and grace and infinite knowledge allowed all people, both Jews and Gentiles, to do their own thing, to follow their own path and to have free will. In order that he can flex his mercy muscles to all people and provide the one and only way to be reconciled to the Father. And we all come the same way, and nobody's better than anybody else. And then he says in verse 33 Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! How inscrutable his ways! Verse 36. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 12. That was just the intro. I'm just kidding. So he says, because of all of that, because of everything I just said from Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans chapter 11. Because of all of that, Paul says, I appeal to you, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, because of the great mercy that God has shown us, present your bodies. Meaning, offer your lives, offer all of who you are, offer all of yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because of all that, this is what you need to do. This goes back to the concept of chapter 6, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Because, students, when you bring a sacrifice to the altar and it's killed, it doesn't get up and start doing its own thing. Right? When it's brought to the altar, it is killed and it does not have... It does not have the ability to get up and do anything anymore. And we are to lay down all that we are, all that we have, and all that we ever hope to be at the feet of Jesus, at the altar, and sacrifice and surrender to his lordship. And when we do that, the Bible has clearly stated that we take on the righteousness of Christ, which, which, is, which is holy and acceptable to God. That's what makes us holy and acceptable to God. Is because of his righteousness. We learn that we can't keep the law. Which makes us law breakers. Which separates us from God. And Jesus fulfilled the law. He, he, he completed it. And we were surrendered to him. He takes our badness. We get credit for his goodness. And we are made right with the father. He says by the mercies of God. <laughs> By the mercies of God, because God has drowned us in his mercy by doing all that he has described in chapters 1 through 11. That, that this should lead you to surrender your, your life to his lordship, because that is your, as verse 1 says, is your spiritual worship. Another version says your rational service. In other words, it's the only thing that makes sense. After everything that we just listened to for the past 30, 35 minutes, the only logical response is to willingly and completely surrender my life to Jesus. And the only rational thing to do in response to everything described in Romans 1 through 11 is complete surrender to Jesus. And that is the point of tonight. The only rational thing to do in response to everything described in Romans chapter 1 through 11 is complete surrender to Jesus. I'm not just talking about belief that. I'm talking about complete, 100% surrender. Jesus, here's my life. Jesus, the fact that, that you took it upon yourself to come to this earth, that you... Even when I was your enemy, you went up on that cross and you spilled your blood so that I could be justified. So that you could be justified. So that you could be justified. So that everyone can be justified and be redeemed, paid in full. 
and put on them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only logical thing to do is surrender. And if you haven't done that, you may have been in church your whole life. I know I was. And you've never fully surrendered. You've kind of given in, you know, here, here's a little bit of time. You know, I'm compartmentalizing my life. You can have this part, and I'm going to keep the rest of this. No. It's everything. Jesus, here's everything. You gave everything. I give everything. Jesus, I just thank you so much for these students who are here tonight. These students, these adults. And I pray, God, that you will convict our hearts of any area of our lives that we have not 100% surrendered to you. Complete surrender. I pray that if there's a student here right now who has maybe believed that you're Jesus, that, that you're the Son of God, but's never truly, truly surrendered and put their faith in and on you, I pray that they cannot leave here tonight until they make sure that they get that right. God, I just pray that you would remind us of these truths in the scriptures, that, that we will go back and look at these, and it just it just gets us stirred up, and it just gets us excited and reminds us just how good you are and how much you've blessed us. And I pray that we will take that and that you will just it will just vivify our love for you and that we will just continue to grow in our love for you and our hatred for sin and we just completely starve out and kill our sin nature as we just completely fall more and more and more and grow and grow more in love with you. It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about us. And I just pray that our lives will show that in everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.